Ah, once again, I feel like we say this every time, but it's so good to hear that, the conversations and the community happening. So welcome again. My name is Melissa Burke, and uh, I'm the other half of our current pastoral team here at Elevation. If we haven't met, it is nice to meet you. So we are walking through the season of Lent, and um, we're walking through this series called The Postures of the People. Uh, we're looking at the humanity of Jesus and exploring the postures of Jesus as well as those of his followers. The prayer in our call to worship this morning um, and throughout Lent expresses that ours is the body of Christ. Our body language and postures matter as we follow Christ. So Steve began this series last week by looking at the posture of the courage to risk. Uh, I wasn't here last week. Um, but Steve, I did actually go back and listen to the podcast in preparation for this morning. Um, and Steve had also told me that he shared his falling off the roof story. He was here last week and heard the story. Okay, so lots of people. That's great. Um, basically, he shared the story of him falling off the roof when he was trying to fix his, his internet satellite something. And um, he used it as an illustration of a healthy kind of risk. That And he, did, he said that he did all of that to give us this beautiful illustration of a not-so-healthy risk-taking illustration. Uh, what he left out of the story was a little text exchange between the two of us um, that we had the morning of that fall. So to set it up, um, I was in Houston. I had just been attending a retreat from Monday to Wednesday, and Steve and I had arranged on Thursday morning, we were going to touch base. I was going to be flying out Thursday afternoon to come home. So we were going to touch base on Thursday morning. He could get me up to speed on what I had missed while I was away, and we could just catch up. So this was the beginning of our text conversation. The blue is me. All right. Good morning. I'm an hour behind you and leaving here around 10 a.m., 11 your time, but I'm up and free before then whenever is good for you. Uh, he says, good morning, I'm currently sitting on top of my snowy roof trying to repair my Starlink satellite connection. And I, in my clever way, said, so now then, lol? Okay, good luck. And he said, thanks. So I put my phone down and walked around the room. I think I was trying to figure out how to get the little Keurig machine to work. I hadn't had a coffee yet. It was desperate times. Um, and then eventually came back to my phone, and then there was this message added. I just fell off my roof. <laughs> so, obviously, my first response was, are you okay? Double question mark. And then I held my phone and waited and waited. And, and what was like hours, probably, or 45 seconds or something like that. But anyway, as I was waiting, um, lots of things were going through my head. I was trying to figure out how I was going to direct the ambulance to get to Steve's house. And I'm realizing I don't actually know Steve's address. And I was just in my head thinking like, okay, yeah, it's a, it's a little farm, kind of like in the middle of nowhere on the way to Sarnia. Uh, there's lots of chickens and a bunch of kids. I think there's a neighbor named Earl around there somewhere. It's easy to find. I'm sure you'll find it. Um, I was also trying to figure out how we were going to, as a church family, extend care to Emily and the kids while Steve was recovering from his broken collarbone or whatever injury he had uh, experienced. 
as well as trying to figure out what were we going to do for the next four weeks while he's not here? Who's going to preach? Um, so eventually, after a long wait, the three little dots showed up and the words, I'm fine. So no 9 call was necessary. We can save the meal train for the next child or animal edition. Um, and perhaps of greatest relief to me, Steve has been around. Yay. So, I tried to figure out a way to work that into the sermon this week, and there really was no natural way, so I just offer that to you as a little extra addendum to last week's sermon, and if you didn't listen to it, I do encourage you to go back and listen. So, today, we are exploring the posture of awe and adoration, and we're sitting with the story of the anointing at Bethany. So let's read first from Matthew 26, 6 to 13. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. God, we are so aware of your presence here with us right now. And I pray, God, that you would, in the mysterious way that you do, in the beautiful way that you do, that you would now um, bring clarity to our minds, bring an openness to our heart. Let us hear from you. As we dig into these stories and as we think about the postures that that you held here on earth and that you are calling us to hold as well, we lean into you, your goodness, your peace, your beauty, with awe and adoration. Amen. So this is one of the only stories that is included in all four Gospels. The Gospels in the Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And while there are some similarities between the tellings, there are also some differences. And uh, we were not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do think it's worth just looking at briefly. So we're going to walk through these, a quick comparison of the tellings of these stories through the different Gospels. So Matthew and Mark are pretty similar. They, uh, the location of the story is in Bethany, the home of Simon the leper. Uh, the person who does the anointing is identified as a woman. There is an alabaster jar of expensive perfume in both of these tellings. Uh, in both of these tellings, the, the oil or the perfume is poured over the head of Jesus. Um, and in both stories, the disciples were indignant with the woman. Um, they expressed that it was wasteful. In both of these stories, Jesus explains, defends the woman. He explains that she had done this to prepare him for his death. He expressed 
that, that uh, they won't always have him, that this was important to do now. And uh, the other thing that was really significant about both of these stories is that Jesus expresses that she will be remembered for this, that this story will be told. So John's account is uh, it's pretty similar. There are some, some minor differences. Uh, in this one, it's, uh, the location is actually identified as the house of Lazarus. So remember the story, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, um, the, the, their home. Um, the woman in this story is actually identified as Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Um, again, there's a pint of expensive perfume. Uh, in this case, however, the story telling is that she poured this perfume on the feet of Jesus and used her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. In this case, the particular disciple who was indignant is identified as Judas Iscariot. Um, and... Uh, but interestingly, there is a note, the writer of John also added a little note there that said he didn't actually care about the poor, he just wanted to steal the money. So he just adds that little like extra note. Um, and Jesus explains again, he defends again the woman and explains, no, this was for, uh, to prepare me for my death. Now Luke's account is, uh, is pretty different. Um, and this might be actually the one that you're most familiar with. So Luke's account, uh, they are at the home of a Pharisee, Simon. This time, the woman is identified as a sinful woman. That is a really in interesting and important distinction made there. It's a sinful woman. Again, an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. This woman wept at his feet, wiped her hair with his feet, with her, wiped his feet with her hair. Um, and poured perfume on his feet. Uh, this time it was Simon, the person who owned the home, who was indignant. Uh, he was more angry, though, at Jesus than the woman. He was angry that Jesus was allowing this. And Jesus, knowing uh, Simon's thoughts, addressed it. He addressed Simon's judgment and affirmed the woman's actions. And this time, there actually wasn't any um, kind of telling about the significance of that anointing, but rather... Jesus speaks to the forgiveness of this woman's sins and kind of the greatness of that. So there have been some fascinating observations from theologians and those who have studied these accounts um, in more depth about these differences. Why the differences? What, are there actually, were there more than one account? Perhaps there were two times that this happened or maybe it's an example of looking on the same event with different lenses and experiencing it differently. But regardless, um, it is interesting to observe which of these accounts have been the primarily agreed-upon account, or at least have been given the most airtime or attention um, as the church and biblical interpretation has developed. If you search for art depicting the anointing at Bethany, the vast majority of what you will find show a woman cowering at the feet of Jesus, sometimes even under the table. Interestingly, when half of the accounts actually don't mention the feet of Jesus at all. So what we do know from these accounts is this. We know there is a woman. We know there is an anointing. We know there is expensive perfume and oil. We know there's a protest. And we know that Jesus affirms the woman. 
So with that in mind, I would like to invite Rachel to come up and read how one writer, her name is Kay Bonakowski, imagines the event from the perspective of the woman in the story. It was as if I heard the words of old, arise, anoint him, this is he. As Samuel before me, I thought, what better place than in the midst of his brothers? I glanced around at his friends, Lazarus, Simon Peter, James, and the others. Two days echoes through me. Did they not hear him? He told us that in two days he dies. He foretold his death and his kingdom in the same sermon. How could the two relate? And yet, I've seen him ball life into my dead brother. Can he rise himself? Two days mark something terrible and wonderful. Death and a kingdom. A kingdom, king in death. I could not see him go to his kingdom unprepared. My sweaty hand grips the cool stone of the vial. Anoint him. Meeting his eyes, I rose and pushed my way around the prostrate bodies reclining at the table. I pulled the alabaster jar from the folds of my robe. His eyebrows quizzed me as I uncorked the bottle, turning its end up and letting all the contents slip out into his hair. The brown liquid dripped down his temples and began to gather in his beard and plop onto his shoulders. A warm, earthy musk invaded my nostrils. My hand cupped his cheek, smearing the nard. His features relaxed for a moment, eyes closed and head upturned towards heaven. Did I expect loud cries of hail the king? Well, yes. Wasn't it obvious he deserved a proper anointing? Instead, silence buzzed in my ears, then cries of outrage. Stop it, Judas shouted. Why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money used in more noble fashion. Mary, what are you thinking? Peter frowned and tried to grab the vial from my hand. My silent action condemned. My motives questioned. Shame spewed out all over the wrong things, threatening to invade me. Had I heard wrong? I pulled my hand away. Leave her alone, Jesus scolded. Why are you giving her a hard time about this? He reached for my hand once more and squeezed. He, to me, he said, this is beautiful. To the others, she has listened to me and knows I'm soon to die. This perfume is for my burial. You have a lifetime to do good for others, but your time with me is limited. Two days, I glanced around, hoping the others would query him further, but they all bore the dull look of stubborn incomprehension, neither hearing nor understanding. Jesus pressed my hand again in reassurance, and his words brought great comfort to me. Believe me, what you have done will be remembered and admired wherever the good news is preached, all over the world. He smiled. Two days is not the end then, but a beginning. In my own hand, he is the Messiah, God's anointed. So, so many things about this event would have been offensive at the time. The excessive and extravagant use of this expensive perfume, 
Um, perhaps the interruption of the gathering and eating of a group of men around the table, and certainly a woman daring to touch a man. Rachel Held Evans notes that in a culture in which a woman's touch was often forbidden, Mary, in at least one account, dares to cradle the feet of Jesus in her hands and spread the oil across his ankles and toes with the ends of her hair. And some of these same aspects that would have been perceived as offensive also make this an incredibly uh, symbolic and meaningful story. So let's explore three of those together. The first one is the significant act of anointing. So culturally and based on the Jewish practices of the time, kings were often anointed with oil, usually on the head by a prophet or priest. It was often connected with a special role or task they were being called to. The Greek word Christos, or Christ, is the translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, which both mean the anointed one, or Messiah literally means one smeared with oil. So whether this woman knew and understood the significance of this anointing, like in the account we just read, or, or not, is perhaps unknown. Although it is reasonable to believe that she at least had an inclination of what she was doing and what it symbolized. But regardless of whether she fully understood, though, Jesus affirmed this anointing was exactly what she was doing. He affirmed that this was the anointing, preparing him for death, calling him Messiah, anointing him as king. When the disciples protest and accuse the woman for what they see as a waste of money, Jesus defends her act and affirms her by saying, and this is taken from the Mark account, Leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body ahead of time. According to the accounts in Mark, Matthew, and John, only this woman, not even the disciples, truly saw Jesus as the Messiah enough to anoint him. So what was it about this woman? Leads us to our second point, the significance of the woman. I think we probably all recognize to an extent the significance of this woman being a woman, especially in this culture and time. However, let's dig into this for just a couple of minutes. Those who had been following most closely with Jesus would have been a group of 12 men, those named the 12 disciples, as well as an unknown number of women. Jesus had been sharing with this group about his death for a while, but from what we can see in the biblical narratives, the 12 disciples were having none of it. They were having a really hard time accepting that this was the future, that this was really going to happen. Um, and in fact, sometimes they even strongly opposed the possibility. One example is found in Matthew 16, when Jesus tells Peter that Jesus will be rejected, suffer and die, and then be raised. And it says in verse 22 that Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. That's some relatively strong language back from Jesus there. He, was, he wasn't just like being really uh, kind of um, he was being really direct. He was saying, this is happening, and for you to even oppose it is, 
is you not listening. It's you not getting it. But clearly Peter, along with the rest of the 12, had a hard time imagining or believing that the death of Jesus would truly be the way forward, even if Jesus was trying to tell them this, at times with, again, strong language. But then this woman, uh, a person who would not have been given a seat at the table, a person whose voice would have been um, unwelcomed with the teachers and theologians of the day as they wrestled over who Jesus was. She wasn't a part of those conversations. This woman of Bethany becomes the first of Christ's disciples to really understand that Jesus is the Christ, and she accepts his death as part of his destiny as the Messiah. Kay Bonakowski writes, She does not use her voice to declare prophecy, but her symbolic act speaks for her. The woman's anointing declares her faith that Jesus is Messiah and foretells that he will die to become king of his people. So why is it so hard for the disciples to understand? Even in that moment, why was it so hard for them to see what was actually going on there as she anointed Jesus? Why did they protest so strongly? Could her gender have played a factor? Perhaps. Perhaps her place in society made it so difficult for them to receive this truth from her, a woman. Kay goes on to write, her gender clouded the disciples to the true meaning of her act. They belittled her and esteemed her service in monetary terms only, disregarding her spiritual edge. But the symbolism was not lost on Jesus. He understood and said her act will be told in memory of her. She poured oil to memorialize him, but he says to remember her. There is undoubtedly deep significance that we can draw from the account of the sinful woman on the floor. Messages that we've heard around humility and the forgiveness of sin, as well as modeling the service and love Jesus taught by anointing the feet of Jesus. And the connection and foreshadowing of the upcoming foot washing where Jesus would wash the feet of, Jesus, of the disciples. We're going to talk about that as we lead up to Holy Week in a little bit. And... And not a but, but and, and perhaps there is also deep significance in drawing from the other three accounts, describing the bold, prophetic woman being the first to declare Jesus as king, as Messiah. I love how Rachel Held Evans describes this anonymous woman who finds herself in the untraditional position of priest and prophet. In the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, it makes perfect sense. And have we remembered her? Shelby Bennett Hansen wonders, if the gospel we preach today doesn't involve this story, then have we missed the gospel Jesus was after? Maybe Jesus' gospel has a lot more to do with recognizing the marginalized and empowering the disempowered. And through all of this symbolism and foreshadowing, Jesus also in that moment receives this woman's act of worship, the third meaningful thing we can draw from the story. And that's the posture that we're going to land on today. What can we learn from this beautiful expression of worship? How, has this woman, how was this woman able to embody worshiping in spirit and in truth? I think probably one primary reason was because she knew Jesus. She had walked with Jesus. She had listened. She had listened when others couldn't. 
She knew his face. She knew his eyes. She didn't just figure out a puzzle. She wasn't the first one to get the right answer. No, she stood, knelt, fell in a posture of awe and adoration because she beheld Christ. She saw Christ. Second Corinthians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And I'm going to read this passage again, this time from the message. I love the language that they use here. Whenever, though, they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil, and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old, constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it. All of us. Nothing between us and God. Our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured, much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Many years ago, as I was wrestling with my own um, relationship with the idea of worship, I came across this quote by a songwriter named Matt Papa. And it says, Behold the glory of God, and stay there long enough to let your eyes adjust. What does it look like for us to behold? To contemplate the beauty of God, and then stay there long enough to be transformed. And this contemplation and gazing, worshiping, can happen in so many ways. Our thoughts often go to the musical form of corporate worship that we've just engaged in here together, as that's what many of us have learned to associate with the word worship, or even a worship service involving song and word and scripture and spiritual practices. And at some point, maybe we will dig in to do a word study around the word worship that's used in scripture. It's pretty fascinating to see that the word is used to describe so much of our lives, service and work and adoration. We can contemplate God's goodness and express worship as we serve and love one another, as we care for the earth, um, as we engage in some of our service and learning opportunities next week as a community. And these are all beautiful expressions. And, again, and, not but. And there is also something profoundly beautiful about coming together and contemplating God's light and love within community in these spaces. It can form us and transform us as we take moments to gaze upon God. It leads us to greater Christ-likeness and seeking justice and goodness. On an episode of the Evolving Faith podcast, um, this is from a couple of years ago, pastor, activist, and liturgist Sandra Maria von Opstel says, Justice is the reordering of creation back to God's original intent, where we were made and created to stand together in solidarity and mutuality as one humanity. True worship 
cannot exist without justice. And justice is sustained in worship. As we worship, we are transformed. We're transformed as we behold Christ, the fullest expression of God's love. We're transformed to seeking justice and the reordering of creation back to God's original intent. The upside-down kingdom that sees the marginalized and oppressed like this woman in the story raised to a place of honor. We need this kind of transformation to embody true worship. And I love this part of what Sandra says, that seeking justice is sustained in worship. We need to behold. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is. We need to spend time contemplating the deep love and goodness of God. And we remind one another in these spaces through song and word and prayer and communal spiritual practices and sacraments. And we stand or kneel or fall there in this posture of awe and adoration. And we do it long enough to let our eyes adjust, to see and behold. And what does this transformation look like? Um, for some, including me, sometimes this word transformation can hold some, some baggage around. We jump to um, behavioral, a behavioral kind of definition of that. We're going to be transformed. We're going to stop doing that bad habit. We're going to be transformed. We're going to stop engaging in this harmful behavior, or whatever that might be. Um, and I think that if we look at this idea of transformation through this narrative, especially, what happened was some sort of internal transformation. And the transformation was actually an awareness or a, oh, that's who you are. And that's what transforms me. So sometimes transformation looks like us coming together and being reminded of like, oh, yes, that's right. That is what your kingdom looks like, right? Okay, we need to pivot. And in fact, we probably need to confess. And we probably need to lament. And we need to reorient ourselves with what you're calling us to in this kingdom work. And sometimes transformation looks like, oh, right, you are a God of love. Right, yes, I need to be reminded of that. You are with me, you are for me, you are with us. And that is the transformation that happens when we take time to sit, stand, fall, kneel in this posture of awe and adoration. I had this experience recently, and I'm going to end with this. I'll call the worship team back up. They're going to end with a song in a minute. Um, when I was at this retreat in Houston, and we, we were going through a number of different services, and they uh, introduced us to this prayer practice where they asked us three times to hold our hands out and the first time to imagine something that was burdening us about the world. And so that felt like an easy ask. There's a lot of things that, that burden us about the world. And so I, uh, it didn't take long for me to immediately imagine, yeah, I, I'm burdened for the safety and protection of women and children around the world. And then they asked us to bring our hands up and whisper those prayers and hold them in our hands. So I did that. And then the third 
um, kind of step of this prayer practice was to raise your hands up and release it to God. And I had this moment where I, I couldn't. And I realized that, oh, yeah, I actually need to stand in awe and adoration and be reminded of God's love and goodness because I was actually at this point where, are you sure I can trust you with this? Because um, I might actually need to hang on to this one. I'm not actually sure that you've got this because I'm still seeing a whole lot of harm. And so are you sure that I can trust you? And the rest of those two days was essentially uh, sitting there long enough to let my eyes adjust again and to believe. And that is the posture of awe and adoration. It leads us to transformation. It leads us to trust. And we are going to end the service today with singing a song. I think many of you will know this song. And I just invite you, if you want to stay seated, feel free to do that. If you want to stand up, you can do that too. There is something really beautiful about physical postures. So if you want to put your hands out as we sing the song, feel free to do that as well. And let's just sit in this moment, even these couple moments, and allow our eyes to adjust.
this is our prayer. Would your life and your light cause us to open up? Would you transform us? Would you continue to reveal yourself to us so that we see another glimpse of your goodness, your beauty, your love? God, we are grateful for this time together. And we pray now as we go and dig deeper with each other around these topics that you would continue to, uh, to just, that we would be aware of your presence as we know you are with us. In your holy name, amen. <laughs>